Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast. We're also part of the Tennis Channel podcast network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. And, well, the first week of the 2020 tennis season is now in the books. We saw Novak Djokovic and the Serbian team capture the inaugural ATP Cup down in Australia. On the women's side, Serena Williams won the 73rd title of her illustrious career in Auckland. Karolina Pliskova won a title in Brisbane and Ekaterina Alexandrova won in Shenzhen. We will provide a full review of these moments as well as how Canadians started their year off and more on this week's episode as we move closer to the first Grand Slam of the year in Australia. And we're also very pleased to welcome the, as her Twitter bio reads, journalist with a law degree who writes about tennis, a friend of the podcast and freelancer for tennis.com, Kamakshi Tandon, how are you doing? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. What about you? We are doing well. We are excited for the new year, and we're happy to have you back with us. So thanks for doing that. And uh, just before we kind of delve into everything from week one, I'm, I'm curious about any New Year's resolutions, Kamakshi, for you, whether they be, uh, you know, tennis-related or otherwise. Like, for me personally, I am going to try to get out on the tennis court more than twice in 2020, which was my number from, from last season, which was very disappointed. So I'm going to try and make more of a comeback if I can. That's my resolution. And to try and watch a little bit more tennis at home, too, and, and find some more time for that. Uh, any New Year's resolutions for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can give you one, which I can tell you I'm probably going to break straight away um, because of the tennis, which is just to try to have a more regular sleep cycle. Now, obviously, you know, as a tennis fan, because there's tournaments going on all the time, it's very difficult to do, and especially right now because uh, the season starts in Australia, so everything's new and fresh, and you want to stay up and you want to watch all the tennis. So, I'm surprised you haven't broken that resolution already. I, I think... I, as I said to you, you make the resolution knowing you're going to break it, but um, at least I think it, it, it forces you to make more of an effort than you otherwise would. And one of the things I, I always say is that whether you go to Australia, which I've done a few times for the tournament, or you stay at home, you know that you're always going to be jet-lagged during this part of the season. <laughs> it's true. When it's you true. go there, you know, you have to just get used to the time change, and when you've done that, you have to come back. And if you're here, you're sort of staying up all night watching the tennis, so you're on a completely different cycle from everyone else yeah completely different clock i will say i I mean it wasn't one of my resolutions specifically sleep but that that would have been broken uh just last week when i decided to set an alarm at 4 45 a.m to watch uh, nadal and djokovic play for a 59th career time so that that kind of resolution would have been thrown right out the window that's well worth it though ben i mean to break a resolution for a match of that magnitude of two of the (laughs) all-time greatest players there you go we forgive you for it. Um, Kamakshi, tell us, as the year starts, is there any sort of storyline or, or particular tournament or player that you've really got your eye on on the men's or and or women's uh, tour in 2020? You know, I think in some ways it's just been the same story for so long. Um, you know, you're sort of the, the older players and the younger players, and every time you think, oh, is this the season that the younger players can break through? Um, so I think that's one which everyone's always looking at. Uh, I think one of the interesting things for me whenever the new season starts is just to kind of look at everybody's level and who's maybe improved during the off-season or who looks like they're playing great. Um, And I was sort of watching the ATP Cup. um, You know, the two players who caught my eye were um, Denis Shapovalov and Alex Dimonor. 
And I think, you know, they're looking very sharp at the start of the season. So there are a couple of players who could maybe have a bit of an impact at the Australian Open. And I'm also really interested in what uh, Dominic Thiem and uh, Denis Medvedev do. Because I think they really finished 2019 looking like they were starting to be competitive with the big four. So um, I think those are four guys I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And, you know, with the women, there's always so many players. But I, I think one of the things we've been looking at for a long time and again is, you know, can can a player like Serena and some of the established champions like Simona Halep kind of hold off the younger players um, who really kind of made a big surge on the WTA Tour in 2019? Certainly, and uh, we'll, we'll stay just on that theme of the ATP Cup because uh, we hit it, hit on it last week with George Belshaw of can, you know, a few other players take the mantle from this big three in terms of Grand Slams. And uh, the the names that I wrote down that were most impressive to me outside of Novak Djokovic were Denis Shapovalov, Alex Dimenauer, uh, Daniil Medvedev once again from this past week. But uh, not only that... No, we totally agree. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, and, and not only that, I just felt uh, this past week and a half uh, in Australia, the quality of tennis, some of these matches felt... Just incredible. Do you recall watching as exciting a, a first week of tennis on the men's side as that? No, I don't. I think that's going to be a really interesting question for the ATP Cup going forward because, uh, you know, I think that was one of the questions going in. Are the players really going to be willing to put in a full effort two weeks before a Grand Slam? And I think when you watch the tournament, there's no question that they did. But now we have to look at whether that's going to affect them for the Australian Open. So I think a lot of... Um, uh, this, a lot of what's going to happen with the ATP Cup it might depend on the way that players like Rafa and Djokovic and Diminor and Medvedev, who had good showings and tough ATP Cups, pull up at the Australian Open. And I think you know if it's a, if it has a if they have good Australian Opens, I think that's going to be really positive for the tournament. And pe- players are going to see it as a good warm up. If they don't and they're tired, then I think players are going to be a bit more cautious about it next time around. And thankfully, there was no major injury because that would have really made some of these top guys reconsider doing this as their preparation moving forward. Uh, Kamakshi, every time I watch Alex Dimenauer now because of you, I can't help but remember. <laughs> do you know where I'm going with this? Yes, I do. I can't help but remember the time you said I somewhat reminded you of him, my my face or something. That uh, <laughs> You'll have to remind me exactly how that went. Yes. But... Well, I think what I, what I said was that he reminded me of you because I have known you for longer. He looks like a younger version of you. I, I assume you haven't yeah. seen Mike run. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was just sort of talking more about the general physical resemblance. Right. I definitely was not talking about uh, tennis ability. I don't <laughs> think he'd ever speak to me if I was. And, and you haven't compared the uh, the, the hairline, uh, I guess, lately either, because uh, there's no way I look like Dimenauer anymore. But maybe once upon a time. But either way, whenever I see him on, I can't help but remember that uh, tweet or comment you made at me once upon a time. So thanks for that one. Uh, so you've been taking a special interest in him. <laughs> you could say that, yeah, and not just because of his fantastic tennis. Um, the international competition for me, always love it, regardless of the sport. I mean, being a hockey fan as well, whether it was in the Olympics or the old World Cup they used to have or the Canada Cup when I was young, I love seeing countries compete against each other. And in tennis, you know, obviously a sport that's so individualistic at the most, uh, most times, it's great to see team competition. That being said, I felt like this ATP Cup was almost like a continuation from Davis Cup because it seemed to have been so close together uh, are we going to lose the appeal, perhaps, or the uniqueness of these international events if we continually end the season with one and start the next season with the other? Can it coexist 
in such close proximity, do you think? Yeah, I think that's the question that a lot of people have been asking. Um, I will say that, you know, I think obviously most people think that there should be just one. And I definitely think most of the players feel that way. But even if we agree, I think it's going to be very difficult to get from A to B on this issue just because you have the ITF and you have the ATP and they have to agree and they have to come together and uh, work together to kind of create one competition. And given their track record, I'm not confident that that can happen very easily. Um, To the extent that we are stuck with two, um, I think, you know, obviously I think it's very confusing for people. I think people don't really know what the ATP Cup is yet. I think because Davis Cup's changed so drastically, I think there's been a bit of an adjustment for people um, just to get used to the way that it works. But I think just for the first go-around, it wasn't terrible. It was in some ways interesting to compare the ATP Cup with what had happened at Davis Cup. I thought the ties were pretty exciting and pretty good. Um, But, yeah, I I think given that these events were either changed or created to try to have more mass appeal, um, I think having two of them is just confusing for people, and I think it's going to limit the appeal of both the competitions, which in some ways is exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do. It's interesting to me that after so many years of people saying the Davis Cup was stagnant and needed reform, not only do we get major reform there, but we get this other new international competition as as well. It's either like, you know, it it doesn't change at all or there's too much change to handle. And uh, I guess we'll have to find that sweet spot in the middle. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We've sort of gone from one extreme to the other. Yeah, that's uh, that's the challenge. Uh, nevertheless, we had a uh, compelling and fantastic tennis and probably the final that many people did want with Serbia taking on Spain and world number one, Rafael Nadal and uh, world number two, Novak Djokovic uh, playing that singles match. And Novak Djokovic was eight. Uh, no, at the tournament and he beat Nadal six two seven six. Djokovic has now won 19 straight sets over Nadal on hard court. It's actually uh, Rafa hasn't picked up a win against Djokovic on the surface since the 2013 U.S. Open. We, we talk about uh, this matchup as maybe one of the best rivalries in the history of the sport, but uh, it's pretty clear Novak is the dominant player when we get to the hard courts. I mean, it's. Uh, I've been hearing that stat a lot, um, you know, especially during the ATP Cup. But I think it's one of those odd things. It is more notable notable for the fact that it almost doesn't reflect the actual state of affairs than than it does. Because I think, you know, obviously we have we've had a few matches like the 2019 Australian Open final where Novak was very dominant. But I think a lot of their matches, whatever the surface, have been very competitive. And I don't think either of them go into a hardcore match thinking that it's definitely going to go one way or the other. I think Rafa knows he has a shot, um, regardless of what the record is. And I think Djokovic knows that you know Rafa can, can beat him if he lets his guard down at all. So for me, that's not a very important set. I think it's sort of interesting to talk about just because it, it seems to run counter to the way we perceive the rivalry. But on the court, I don't think it really makes any difference. What do you think? Well, uh it was interesting to see Twitter react to specifically Nadal fans uh, kind of viewed this match and it was a 6-2-7-6 loss, but they seem to view it as a step in the right direction because the second set was unbelievably competitive. Uh, Nadal had a few looks at, at break point at a key juncture of that set. And it was kind of a, a type of set that could go either way that I got the sense that his camp felt if he plays that type of tennis against Novak consistently, he could kind of turn the tides in this rivalry on the hard court surface. Yeah, 
I mean, it's nice that in some ways, you know, they were playing, I think it was the 55th time. Um, and it's still so tight and you're still getting all these sort of great rallies and everything. But I, I also, when you watch them play, it's a great opportunity to look at the way their games have evolved since they first arrived on tour. And I feel the same way when Federer plays Nadal. I mean, the matchup is just so different from, you know, the way they would have played a few years ago. So, you know, you think of the 2012 Australian Open final with those sort of grinding rallies, and they both seem to be trying to just sort of wear each other down and play longer and longer. And I think now that they're a bit older, you see a lot more kind of effort to finish off the points. They're going into the net more. You know, I think they both sort of work to improve their serving. Um, so in some ways, you know, I think it's a rivalry that's always going to be very tight and very competitive. And I think it's nice that you, you kind of have this long narrative to follow. Um, and, yeah, I think for both players, I don't think there was anything bad to take away from this. Um and I think they're both in very good shape for the Australian Open because, to me, they didn't really look their best through the whole tournament, and they still were the two most successful singles players. So I think that sort of it's been that way for a while, and I think that at least doesn't seem to have changed. So we know who's looking good on the men's side heading into the Aussie Open because of this ATP Cup to start the year with some pretty heavy competition. And we know some who probably are disappointed with their result. And then there's one name that we've hardly heard anything about, and that's Roger Federer, who chose not to play ATP Cup. And I think that, given his age, uh, probably a wise decision to avoid that kind of strenuous uh, day-after-day kind of action. But uh, what do you think, Kamakshi, of Roger's choice to just come in without any tournament play? No Hopman Cup, obviously, this year for him to go and have some fun with uh, Switzerland and Belinda Bencic, which they've done the past couple of years. How do you uh, foresee him entering the first slam of 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a decision that was kind of almost based around other decisions. I think he looked at kind of his schedule, the exhibition schedule in 2019, and, you know, obviously it's going to be a busy schedule this season, so he needed a break somewhere, and I think this just happened to be where he took it. Uh, So I'm not sure it's sort of ideal not to have any matches going into the Australian Open, Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's terrible either. Um, I think he obviously played a lot in 2019. Uh, you know, and, and he's someone who has so much experience that I don't think he needs a ton of matches going into a Grand Slam. But I think the thing that it does for him is that he probably doesn't want a very tough draw in the first few rounds. He'll kind of want to warm up and work his way into the tournament. So I think it creates a little bit more um, interest in what his draw is going to be. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's so easy to forget uh, Federer has won two of the past three Australian Opens. It's not like he's going to an unfamiliar spot where he's struggled to win for some time. It's not like uh, the way the U.S. Open has been to Roger in the past. Uh, he's been very, very comfortable in Melbourne, so I'm, I'm sort of fascinated to see what uh, what level he can produce. On the women's side, uh, another veteran, and, you know, many would call her the greatest of all time, uh, but it had been a while since we'd seen her hoist a trophy and win a title. Serena Williams picking up her first win uh, since 2017 at the Australian Open, uh, capturing the ASB Classic in Auckland. And it looked like just a really dominant week from start to finish for Serena. What did you make of her play and and her level uh, to Open 2020? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think she improved as the tournament went on, which is really positive. Um, And she got her first title since coming back on tour. So I think that that was probably something she was looking to do because they seem, you know, I think a lot of people have said that she seems to have developed a psychological block in finals. So I'm sure it was nice to kind of get into a final and finally win it. Um, I think, you know, on the WCA tour, when you want a straight answer, 
uh, Karolina Pliskova is often one of the players you go to. And I think she did a very good job, actually, of summing up Serena's week, where she said, you know, there was really no one to beat her in Auckland. Um, but at the same time, when you look at the level of tennis she played, she's obviously had a good off season. She's looking pumped, I think is the word that she used. So, you know, she's when she's in that state, she's always going to be very tough. So I think all positives for Serena in Auckland. I think if she had, you know, if she'd gone down in the first round, I don't think we would have been that concerned. But I think getting the win is, is going to help her have more rhythm when she gets to Melbourne. Yeah, I mean, she can't help but play and, and try to beat the players that are put in her path to the title. Uh, obviously, that uh, draw was weaker than in, in Brisbane. But uh, nevertheless, I think getting that win, capturing her first title in nearly three years, which is really remarkable when you think about it, that it took so long, especially given that she's made four Grand Slam finals over that, that period of time. Um, but I think the fact that she's got that title and you could tell when she won it, raising her arms up to the air, letting out that scream, it meant so much, whether it was joy mixed with relief and, uh, you know, it was kind of uh, therapeutic for her just to get over that hump. And I think that's going to be important for her mentally so that when she does get back to a final of a Grand Slam, which I think is inevitable to happen at at least uh, another couple of times, she's going to have maybe that added confidence to know that she can perform in that that final match. Um, Also, it should be noted that Serena... Um, donated all of her prize money for the week to the Australian Wildfire Relief, which, you know, different players have found different ways of doing that, whether it's ace count or, um, or in this case, her entire prize money. So that's to be applauded. And I kind of like Simona Halep's uh, decision to uh, not go with aces because she says that's not her thing. But instead, it's uh, every time she um, sort of scowls or berates Darren Cahill and her box... <laughs> She's going to donate 200 bucks. So that was, uh, I think, a creative way of approaching uh, the, the topic. Yes, that was funny. I also liked uh, Belinda Benches saying she's going to donate money for every double fault she hits. <laughs> so was, it's good to see the players kind of having some fun with it. And I think, actually, they've done a great job sort of um, kind of increasing awareness of what's going on and sort of encouraging people to donate. I think especially internationally because, uh, you know, they're all in Australia, but tennis is a huge following around the world. And I think it's probably really helped to get the message uh, to people who maybe aren't following the news in Australia that much and kind of really spotlighted just the state of things there. And speaking of spotlight, going through your Twitter feed today, it seemed like there was one thing that was on your mind, and that was the uh, discussion and debate about the air quality in Melbourne at the Australian Open uh, qualifying tournament. Uh, heat over 45 degrees Celsius, or for those uh, in the U.S., over 100, 110 degrees uh, for American listeners. Uh the sight of Delilah Jakubovic uh, down on the court coughing and gasping for air was pretty awful to have to watch and for her to have to endure that. Um, and this wasn't someone that was, you know, behind from the get-go. She was up a set and about to even things up at 6-6 in the second and had to withdraw from that. We talk about how those outside the top 100 have such a tough time, um, you know, making money and having opportunities. And then when they do have a key moment like this where they're trying to qualify for one of their four biggest opportunities of the year, they have to deal with these conditions. So what, what options should have or, or could have been explored to find a way around seeing players suffer like this, Kamakshi? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing we always say is, obviously, you know, as Craig Ty said, this is all new. Uh, this is not something the tournaments have a lot of experience in. So I think we do have to recall that. But at the same time, you know, I think where the player's health is concerned and their ability to compete is concerned, I think it's always good to take a cautious approach. And that's where I think maybe the tournament yesterday was not as cautious as it should have been. 
um, you know, like even when she retired, they didn't halt play. I think that was, if there was ever something that happens where you think, oh, maybe we shouldn't play, you know, a player actually kind of retiring when they're up um, should be it. Uh, you know, because it's new, it's really difficult, um, I think, to sort of say precisely what they should do. I One of the things I've been looking at for a couple of days now is just sort of trying exactly what is happening, you know, in terms of air quality and the way they measure it. And it's very complicated, um, you know, when you really kind of get down to the nitty-gritty of it, because I think the the composition of the air quality is different. So you have things like fine particles, and then you have chemicals in the air, and they kind of have to measure all of that. And then obviously that affects different people differently, and it will affect people differently in different conditions. So it's really complicated. And I will say that the tournament does seem to have made an effort to have a lot of experts on site and get a lot of advice. But at the same time, I mean, I think common sense has to prevail. And I think at some point you just have to kind of walk on court and say it's too hot to play or it's too polluted to play. And I think sometimes they've sort of gotten so caught up in these complex measurements that they just forget to use their senses, you know, like their basic kind of senses of sight and touch um, and just kind of what they're feeling on the court. Uh, So I think that will be important going forward. And, you know, yesterday there was a lot of play in those conditions, I think today the conditions are better and they haven't allowed play to start so far. So I think they've learned from their first day, so that's positive. Yeah, and certainly we saw a number of players on Twitter sort of speaking out saying uh, this is sort of unacceptable and felt that Tennis Australia was was not making uh, the right decision in allowing play the previous day, as you mentioned, and weren't really being communicative about the issue whatsoever that we hadn't uh, seen or read any statements. But uh, as you mentioned, they did suspend play for a period of time uh, before uh, qualifying today. Uh, I'll just mention one of our Canadians in qualifying, and she won her first-round qualifying match is uh, Jeannie Bouchard. She was at the ASB Classic where Serena Williams won that 73rd title. Uh, Jeannie Bouchard has, in a way, had a fascinating career and we've talked about her on this podcast a number of times, uh, but she had a nice quarterfinals run, which uh, we thought was positive. Had a couple of wins over Kirsten Plipkins and, and Caroline Garcia. Uh, Kamakshi, is she, is she still a player that that is a draw, despite the, the fact that her ranking is outside of 200? Is is she still a player that you think is maybe talked about, or is it really just kind of us in Canada clinging on to a, a 2014 Wimbledon Finals appearance? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, whenever a player kind of makes a big splash um, internationally, uh, you know, people get to know them, and I think they remember them. I think a lot of people still know Bouchard's name, and they recognize her name. And so when I think they do that, I think you're naturally interested in a player that you know. So I think she still gets good crowds and she's still sort of known quite a bit given what she's done for a couple of years, which is not very much. And I think, you know, we would probably agree that the potential is still there. I think she can still get back to somewhere around the level where she was. Whether she does it or not is a different issue. And I think just the fact that she kind of has that potential also helps to kind of keep up the interest in her. And after that losing streak last year, I forget how many singles matches in a row it was, but there's really nowhere to go but but up from February on this year, I feel like, for Jeannie too, right? Yeah, I mean, look, she's winning matches again, so that's a positive. Um, she just has to build on it. I thought yesterday was really good because she was obviously having problems in the heat. I think both the players were, but, uh, you know, she kept fighting. She had a pretty easy third set. Um, so I think sort of when you can get tough wins, that builds up your confidence. I think one of the things she's had problems with 
recently is, you know, even when she gets into a winning position, she doesn't have that confidence. So then she doubts herself and she makes a few errors and then it's a downward spiral. If she can now start to get a few wins on the board, I think it can be a sort of positive upward spiral. So I, you know, she's, that's, I think, what she's kind of building towards. I think if she can qualify for the Australian Open, I think that will be a very big step for her. Speaking of upward spirals, having you on our podcast always feels like we're trending upwards. So uh, on that note, I just want to say thank you so much for, for joining us to uh, help us start out the year here on Matchpoint Canada. It's great talking to you again. We look forward to your writing, your tweets and observations uh, as we progress through the season. No problem. Thank you, and happy midnight viewing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, Kamakshi Tandon, freelance writer for Tennis.com, also done work in the past uh, for ESPN.com, and I think she hits on a good point about Jeannie Bouchard. Uh, in the matter of losing, I felt that way for a number of years watching in losses, that it does feel like she is in winning positions and sometimes isn't isn't trusting her shots and things kind of go awry, that that always tells me a lot of the mistakes and a lot of the losses are really between the ears. No, and she's not, uh, you know, um, uh, mailing it in. She's not giving up. Uh, she's trying new th- things. She, she joined with Jorge Tadero mm-hmm. in the later stages of last year. And uh, when we spoke with her in August, she was pretty open about how you know, how terrible things have been going, but that she had to just keep getting back to to work. And she certainly did seem to be putting in a lot of time on the practice court and training. And uh, and we wish her well in, in 2020. And it'll be interesting to see how she progresses from here because she also started last year quite strong making the quarters as well, where she went out in a, in a tough one to yeah. Julia Gerges and this year a tough one to Amanda Anisimova. So let's hope she can build on it this time around and, and stay healthy, of course, which has always seemed to have been a, a challenge for Jeannie too in recent years. Yes, no kidding. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can find me at Ben Lewis SN590. You can find Mike at McIntyre Tennis. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we thank you uh, to Kamakshi Tan. And you can find her on Twitter as well at Kamakshi underscore Tandon. Uh, we'll hit on a couple events that uh, took place just last week and then sort of get ahead to what we have coming. And, of course, the Australian Open around the corner with uh, qualifying happening now. Last week in Doha, Andre Rublev capturing uh, a nice title. He defeated Corentin Moutet in the final He's now cracked the top 20, so that's definitely uh, a big goal of his, which he's already achieved to open the 2020 season. Milos Raonic was there. He went out to the finalist, Corentin Mute. It looked like a nice draw for him to kind of get his 2020 season going, but uh, Corentin Mute played some nice tennis, beat him in a couple tie breaks. My concern right now is, is Raonic going to be match fit for Melbourne? Because you're making that transition to the best three of five. I have a memory of few years back an early exit against Lucas Lachko where he his conditioning wasn't there because he hasn't pl- hadn't been playing enough tennis that's my concern that it could happen again I didn't see how he looked this past week in terms of his physical fitness and and physique but you're right it was a couple years ago where he showed up quite out of quite quite out of shape for the Aussie Open and that showed in his play as well then there was last year where he showed up at the Aussie Open and was was lights out through the first half of the tournament to the mm-hmm. point where we were shocked that he didn't win his quarterfinal match against Lucas Pui um, so this year, I mean, this doesn't bode well, the, uh, the result here, but, um, but fitness wise, he's got to, I think, work on that to be, to be ready to go. And if he could just get into a, a series of tournaments where he can get through them healthy, which never seemed to happen last year, 
I think Milos has a lot of positive um, upside to him in the future, even at 28, 29 years old now. I think he could still have some good years where he's a threat. I know there's a lot of people on Twitter who've disagreed with me about that recently, but I still feel that he's a top 15 guy, even potentially top 10 guy when he's healthy and playing his game the way that he's shown he's been capable of doing at times in the recent past. Um, Not to be seated at the Aussie Open just seems real strange that there's not going to be a number there next to his name. And and how long has it been since he was not not seated? Yeah, I had to dig through the rankings for a while scrolling further and further back, and I was like, my goodness, Raonic has carried a seed to every Grand Slam he has entered. He missed a couple of French Opens and a couple spots here and there uh, since the Aussie Open back in 2011. So we're talking about a nine-year span where he was always within those 32 seeds. And I wouldn't have guessed that. Like, I wouldn't have gone back that far, but he's been a mainstay uh, in the top 32, and he's been, for the most part, pretty, you know, um, regularly in the top 10 to 20 players on the tour as well. So I think with all of what Dennis and Felix have done recently, people tend to almost forget perhaps what uh, Milos accomplished. Yep. Uh, but I think we owe a lot in Canadian tennis to what he's done. And when he came along, boy, that was really him and Jeannie there, 2014, 2013, 14, really groundbreaking for Canadian singles tennis. Certainly. And he's been really, if you think about it, outside of the big three, I would argue Milos Raonic is probably within that top five of most consistent Grand Slam performers. Yeah. Uh, and that that's just beyond the Wimbledon final. You know, he has three separate quarterfinals at Wimbledon. He's gone to the quarters four times at the Australian Open, once at the semis, uh, and then, you know, a whole pile of round of 16. So he is very consistent when we get into these two-week events. I think the day off serves him nicely. Uh, it's just unfortunate that he, he's not going in with much match play at all. So ideally... You you know, this is a complete crapshoot without the seed of what kind of draw he can get. I guarantee you, though, a, a seated player is not going to be... <laughs> someone's going to be ticked. Yeah, someone's going to be frustrated. They're dealing with Milos Raonic, though, in the first round. And, you know, you mentioned uh, just moments ago, Andre Rublev catching the uh, the title and giving Russia a third presence in the top 20. Mm-hmm. If Milos was healthy, I think Canada could have something similar as well. Yeah. Although Milos being the veteran with the two young kids, but uh, you look at Russia, you feel kind of jealous, and then you think, well, you know what? That could be us if things were uh, working out health-wise, I feel like. Yes, certainly. Uh, I'll mention uh, Canadian Vashik Pospisil playing the men's event in Auckland this week. Uh, breeze through qualifying and beat Jao Sousa in, in straight sets. And it's not confirmed yet uh, that he will be playing the Australian Open, but I believe he can make use of a protected ranking so he doesn't have to worry about qualifying for Melbourne. Uh, so realistically, we expect him to be there, which would be nice. I will just fire off the names who are in Australian Open qualifying, Braden Schnurr, Stephen Diaz, Peter Polanski. And then on the women's side, making her Grand Slam qualifying debut, Layla Annie Fernandez. And, uh, you know, I'm not setting high expectations for the first time, but uh, I can picture in a couple of years she'll be done with the qualifying. Yeah, I mean, just having the experience right now is a good stepping stone for Layla Annie. She's learning, she's progressing, she's so young uh, and has so much ahead of her. So she's she's put in the work and she's taken steps forward over the past year, getting that ranking almost into the top 200, which almost assuredly is going to happen this season. Uh, it's going to be interesting, as you said, to see how high she can she can take it, but there's certainly no rush and, um, you know, just a wonderful person, too. Very, very positive. Great to talk to. We've talked to her several times mm-hmm. and looking forward to having her back on again this year to talk about that continued professional growth that she's going to uh, go through.
Certainly. Uh, we'll move over just to the, the women's side of things. Uh, we talked about Serena Williams' win in Brisbane. A lot of big matchups uh, throughout the week, which was great. Uh, and it was the one premiere. And ace queen Carolina Pliskova winning a long, tough three-setter over Ma- Madison Keys in a nice final 6-4, 4-6, And if I'm probably pointing to a couple names of the best of the crop without a grand slam, you're probably looking at Carolina Pliskova, who's number two in the world right now and Madison Keys, uh, who is just outside that top 10, number 11, and they have both been to Grand Slam finals. Yeah, Pliskova is funny to me because she's a top five, like, mainstay, top mm-hmm. 10 mainstay for sure, and now she's up to two again, was number one a couple of summers ago um, when she was in Toronto for the uh, the Rogers Cup a couple of years back. And yet she's sort of this underrated, kind of under the radar, which is how can that be possible for someone who's ranked so high to be considered in that way? But when we spoke with Courtney Wynn on the uh, podcast at the Rogers Cup in August, and we said, hey, Courtney, you know, you're with the WTA, you're with these women week in and week out and getting to see things that maybe most listeners and, and most people that come to tennis tournaments don't see. Who would you recommend to people coming to a tennis tournament that, hey, here's a player you got to go see? And we were kind of looking for an answer outside of the norm. Mm-hmm. And she put forth Karolina Pliskova's name and said, hey, even though she's ranked so high, People don't notice or don't realize just so how talented she is. And it's not just the serve. There's a lot more going on there. So when I hear someone who works so closely with the tour say, you've got to go check out this player. Uh, I mean, this is someone that uh, we need to take notice of. And outside of the, the revolving door of slam winners the past couple of years, Pliskova is almost one where you kind of scratch your head and say, how come this hasn't happened yet? Yeah, and uh, I think many thought it it had the potential of happening if we looked back at last year's Australian Open. She rallied from down 5-1 in the third set to Serena Williams at a quarterfinal. You think when you can pull off that type of monumental upset and have such a big comeback, that can maybe uh, catapult you to a Grand Slam title. Didn't happen that way. Of course, it was Naomi Osaka beating Petra Kvitova, but Pliskova, uh, another player who's just been very, very close and and is pretty consistent overall uh, in terms of Grand Slam runs. It, it's pretty often that we are seeing her in the second week of slams. And when you've got a badass name like the Ace Queen, I mean, that's got <laughs> to, you know, one. you step on the court, no one's going to want to face you if you're the Ace Queen. That's uh, true. You ever have any nickname when you were, I mean, you played tennis at a higher level than me. You ever have a tennis nickname or something that, that people referred to you as? Uh, well, I, I will say my my brother, who is six years older than me, uh, we both grew up uh, Kingston, Ontario, and we both grew up playing at the Kingston Tennis Club, KTC, as we called it. Uh, so my brother, my last name being Lewis, my brother was all lit was always Lewis. And then when I started playing, a few of his friends who also played tennis started calling me Little Lewis. Little Lewis. Little Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that stuck with a few people there. Um, and, you know, I was, y- you see me now and I, I don't look like a a small person. I was going to say, nobody calls you Little Lewis anymore. Right. But I, I, was a, I was a short kid. I was a shorter than average kid. Uh, I kind of just shot up in high school uh, in grade 10 out of nowhere. But I was, always, I was always a smaller kid when I played tennis too. So I think people underestimated me. And so where, where did your sort of tennis path take you in terms of playing? I know you still play competitively now in, in some tournaments around here in Kingston. I play at the uh, 5.0 level uh, for, for the OTA. Uh, not, it's not a level to brag about, but it's, it's decent as well. I think there's some good tennis players, especially the top of that 5.0 class are definitely good players. And uh, I, was, I was a decent junior in Kingston. Uh, I won a couple junior titles at that tennis club, for example, won a few high school titles within Kingston, 
that's not that big of an accomplishment. I don't think the talent pool was that great at the time. Uh, and then won a couple singles championships in Kingston. And, uh, I, well, my biggest title uh, over really the past 10 years was just this past fall when I won the uh, Caledon Open 5.0. You're, you're just entering and, your prime, and had, man. I had a humble brag about that one on Instagram, but uh, that's because I had, hadn't won a title in like 10 years. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that that's my claim to fame right now. But uh, I had some results in Kingston. Then when you kind of step outside of that pool and, and you're talking about provincially, I was like, oh, my goodness, there are players that are way beyond any level that I'll ever, I'll ever get to. See, and I hear your stories, and I just wish I could even have come anywhere close to that. You say you didn't get a title <laughs> in 10 years. How about never years, okay? Never, well, ever okay. having one. But uh, played high school tennis, and um, unfortunately, in, in one of my prime years where I really felt I was going to do some damage, which, let's be realistic, I wasn't. But uh, we had tryouts in the gym indoors. And, you know, in the gym, you've got all the different colored lines, volleyball, basketball. Mm-hmm. And we had tennis lines in this gym. My opponent who beat me through some questionable calls I found out afterwards was colorblind. (laughs) And so he could not differentiate the tennis from the volleyball or whatever it was. And that definitely worked against me. Um, Years later, this is that was when I was in Montreal after moving to Ontario and living in Guelph for a few years. Did make it to the finals of Kawasa, which was central western Ontario in the mixed doubles uh, uh, ladder uh, bracket. Uh, only to come up against a uh, team of German exchange students who uh, made us uh, sort of recall Boris Becker and Steffi Graf and just wiped the floor with us. So that was it. Nowhere beyond that. And as I said at the start of the show, New Year's resolution is to get on on the court more than twice in 2020. I will see that as a a success for me personally. (laughs) Well, uh, I'll make sure of that. We'll get out and hit at least two times. We should. We've never done that. I know. It's true. Surprisingly Uh, enough. Maybe we'd never talk to each other after we hit. I don't know. (laughs) That could be the end of the podcast. No, no, no. I'm not that salty. Don't worry. Um, Anyway, moving on. Ace Queen is a much better nickname than I ever had. Uh, And and she's certainly with this big title in Brisbane, probably cementing herself if she wasn't already as a prime contender for the Australian Open. Uh, We got an interesting email, I will just say. Uh, to submit some picks and I, I don't want to give them away yet because that's going to be the focal point of of our next episode leading into the Australian Open but uh, it, it's a pretty fascinating first grand slam of the season yeah in terms of your uh, expected picks and, and underdog picks and and what even constitutes a dark horse pick because for some people you know on the men's side they might throw like a CC Passer is Zverev as a dark horse, but really I don't think you can, you know, include someone who's in the top 10 or 15 there, mm-hmm. but that just speaks to the dominance of the big three. Um, but uh, yeah, I like doing those kind of picks and, and we're going to get made fun of afterwards. Of course we are, as most people, you know, <laughs> will end up being also, but uh, yeah, one week until uh, not even one week until Grand Slam tennis starts up. And yeah, I love the 250 and the 500 tournaments and the, the premier tournaments on the women's side, but there's nothing to me like Grand Slam action when you've got all the men, all the women, best of five on the men's side, and it's just like, where do I even start watching and at what time? Yeah, at what time is uh, always the difficult question. I'll mention as well on the WTA side, we had the Shenzhen Open. Katerina Alexandrova with a big title there. She defeated Elena Ribakina 6-2, 6-2 in the final. This is a player, another one who's 
certainly under the radar, but uh, inside the top 30, I'm pretty confident she'll get inside the top 20 this season, if not better than that. And I had a chance to watch her at Rogers Cup this past year playing Serena Williams. They played a tight 7-5, 6-4 match. And I remember watching that and being very impressed with Alexandrova's return game. Very strong two in a backhand. It actually felt like a match that she could have won against Serena. So just one of many kind of rising stars on the WTA to keep track of is a Katarina Alexandrova from Russia. And I think that was probably someone you can consider as a dark horse going uh, into Melbourne. Well, there you go. You heard it here first from little Lewis. I mean, from Ben Lewis, everybody <laughs> um, to, uh, to keep an eye on. And there will be upsets obviously uh, early in the season and people haven't found their stride yet. Look at uh, all the, the upsets we talked about last week with Sloan Stevens, Angie Kerber, uh, yeah. uh, Svitolina got absolutely destroyed by Danielle Collins. I mean, some of these things early in the season, you just can't predict and, and can't really know what to expect. So that's part of the fun as well as, uh, as seeing some of your favorite players, hopefully go, go deep in that first major of the year uh, in terms of Canadians and someone who's got to be considered a favorite in the uh, doubles world. Gabby Dabrowski actually got back on court and played a little singles uh, this uh, earlier this week in Adelaide, where she attempted to qualify, had a great first round win in qualities, six two six one over Pauline Pomarchier, who is ranked inside the top 100 in singles. So that was really solid. And then unfortunately she fell to uh, Daria Kasikina, who not too long ago was in the top uh, 10, 20 herself. So, mm. uh, but got to be encouraging for Gabby who tries to fit in singles whenever she can. And she's playing doubles this week, not with uh, a typical partner, but Daria uh, Jurek. And uh, then she's going to partner up with uh, Alona Ostapenko for the next couple of months. Uh, so we've been told. Yes, uh, and I, I hope we can see that partnership uh, come to fruition for the Australian Open. That would be good. I'll, I'll also mention Sharon Fitchman. Uh, she's at the Hobart International, and her and Katerina Bondarenko of Ukraine playing as a partnership. Uh, they won their round of 16 match, so they are through to the quarterfinals as uh, Sharon Fitchman has uh, really made a solid comeback on the doubles circuit and has been playing well consistently. Uh, I guess... All there is to look forward now. It, I mean, we have qualifying happening. I, I'm still waiting to see that main draw. I imagine it's coming out Friday. And then we have our first Grand Slam of the season. That's It's the portion of the tennis calendar, which is kind of different than the rest because that first slam hits you right off the bat. It's the most sleep deprived we're going to be all year long. 100%. And my wife is going to look at me again over the next couple of weeks. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and you're still helping out with the kids in the morning. Yeah. So uh, just so I'm aware of that. But uh, it's well worth it for uh, for a two-week time period, especially if the Canadians are going deep. Uh, make sure to check back with us. We're going to have some fun draws and giveaways also over the Aussie Open and the first few weeks of 2020. So uh, we're happy to share those with you shortly. And uh, thanks for the support. Thanks for the retweets and the likes and interacting with us on Twitter. Uh, last week was fun having some listeners on to engage with, and we're definitely going to look to do that again soon too. Yeah, that was great. And uh, we'll certainly uh, keep that interaction going. Maybe get your predictions for the Australian Open as it is just a few days away from main draw action. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk with you next time.